This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. 315 right now. Now, I, I dread, I honestly am terrified to ask the following question, but how many of you, this is the very first seminar in this series that you've attended, this session? Oh, just, just atrocious, awful. <laughs> this, this, this means that all of our concluding arguments, our closing thoughts, here it is, it's all predicated on that stuff you didn't hear, and uh, that's okay. I will do my best to briefly and I mean briefly, with lots of questions left over, catch you up to speed and just get us to where we are now, because we're going to try to land the plane. Um, the, the method I've been trying to ad address this topic in, the great controversy and our individual role in it, uh, victory over sin, the individual conflict, uh, tried to start from a very broad context, like a funnel, start really, really wide and get the big con uh, universal sweep and then keep bringing it closer to home, bringing it closer to home, bringing it closer to home, till right now we're going to see some just very, very practical tips, some, um, I believe, some very uh, encouraging, powerful insights from the scripture, of course, and is supported by the spirit of prophecy, and uh, hopefully we make everything make sense. But before we got to this one, we had um, several sessions. We outlined the great controversy, and basically the fall of Satan happened in how many successive steps? Four, for the three of you who are here, <laughs> four successive steps. That's right. Satan was originally cast out of the courts of heaven, physically removed from his job and the location. A place was found no longer for him in heaven. But he was not blotted out of existence because though God could see in his heart and he knew what was right, it was just as important for God to be seen as right as to actually be right. Right? He has a universe full of sentient, intelligent, created beings who need an opportunity to see for themselves the rightness or the righteousness, if you will, the, the correctness of God and his verdict. So he casts them out instead of blotting them out, and step one, he's physically removed from the courts of heaven. Step two, Jesus Christ comes, as the scripture tells us, to uh, undo or to end the, the works of the devil. And in so doing, he reveals the character of God who would give everything for the, for the care of his creatures in contrast with Satan who would take everything, including the life of God itself, if it were possible, to satisfy his own ends and his own uh, desires. So at the cross of Calvary, the onlooking universe saw for the very first time two things. Number one, they saw the character of God finally and fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Because before then, by the way, even if God had said, I love you, I would give everything for you. It's true, but it hadn't had an opportunity to be demonstrated in practice, right? Okay? So it went from theory to reality, and they saw who God was in the person and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it was, they, it was fully revealed, Desire of Ages makes very clear, that Satan's uh, mask was ripped away, his true character was revealed, and he was really the murderer God had said he was all along, Right? And as you wrote back, you saw in Isaiah that the violence was within, but at the cross, that violence was unleashed, and the onlooking universe saw the character of Christ starkly contrasted against the character of Satan, and at that moment, the last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. 
They were just not listening anymore. That was step two, cast out of the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Step three is now, what about those people who Christ died to save? Because he didn't just die to destroy Satan, but he also died to redeem sinners, praise the Lord, right? I'm, fa- I, I'm, I'm glad that, yes, there's a plan for the destruction of sin, but I'm equally glad that there's a plan to save sinners. Amen. So the same, the same power of Christ's cross that demonstrated why Satan should die. Now the question the angels ask was, why should any of Satan's followers live? Right? And so stage three is demonstrating not the destructive power of God's cross, but the redemptive power that those who have fallen into the deceptions and and temptations of Satan can be rescued and made into heavenly beings once again. And of course the final step comes at the end of the millennium in stage four, when even the wicked will have their opportunity to face the book of record, to see the contrast between the character of Christ and the character they have formed from following the Ark Deceiver. And they realize that even if God were to let them in, they wouldn't even want to go. That they would not be happy there. Ms. White even goes as far as to say, Satan himself, though of course, the wicked and Satan, does Satan want the kingdom? Absolutely. He wants the streets of gold, all those things, things we put on the felt board that we want to go to. He wants to go there too, right? But what he doesn't like, what he can't resonate with is the character of the king. He wants the kingdom, but he has no interest in the king. Mrs. White says that if the Lord were to put him in heaven, it would be to him supreme torture. It would literally be hell. God says we don't do that. So he honors the choices of every sentient being And every question is answered in the great controversy. Which brings us back, we're not living in stage one, we're not living in stage two, and stage four hasn't happened yet, hopefully by the grace of God. The second coming will be soon and very soon. We'll go through the millennium, all of our questions will be answered, and that will be done, and sin will be no more. Which, of course, if there was a thesis statement for the great controversy, it's go and sin no more. That's what he wants. So, here we are in stage three, and we're trying to uh, understand what's required of us as we look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, can he just pardon us and call us good on paper or can the power of his cross actually make us good in person? Can Jesus actually finish what he started in us? Today we're going to just bring that in for some very practical application, some just uh, some promises from Scripture. We looked already that yes, you can be an overcomer, not on your own, but through the merits and through the strength of Jesus Christ you can overcome. Now, just some practical tips on what that looks like and how that can be accomplished in the life. So, before we get started in this final session, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so, so much for this wonderful conference. Thank you for the opportunity to be here in Christian fellowship on this high Sabbath day. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to a study of your word, Lord, I ask that you would sharpen our minds to understand it But beyond that, Lord, soften our hearts to receive it, and through the grace that comes from God alone and the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, write your law on our hearts. Turn us into the heavenly creatures we are originally designed to be. Recreate us into the image of Jesus Christ, for we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. If you would, please... Take out your notes, take out your Bibles, and we're going to be off. We're just going to be having a Bible study today. I'm not, you know, apologizing for that. I'm just saying that's what's happening. All right. If you would, please go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. In your notes this time, we just basically have little bracketed 
some areas that are of encouragement and promises in Scripture of how that victory can be manifest in the life. What's the mechanics? Is, does the Bible just say, just grit your teeth and really, really struggle harder and harder and harder and harder, push, 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 push? What does it actually say about this? Let's go to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. The Apostle Paul writes of his own experience, and I believe this should be the template for the Christian, the Christian walk, the Christian life. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But what? Christ lives where? In me. Christ lives in me. Now, does that mean that Paul is physically no longer, I mean, this is a suicide note? Of course not. He's going to physically breathe and walk and talk, and, and, but what he's saying is, is spiritually, I have reckoned myself in Christ, dead with his cross, and now his resurrected, victorious Christ is now living in me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Notice that Paul doesn't escape and he doesn't put himself in some sort of convent. He's like, I'm, I'm not otherworldly. I'm supernaturally. He doesn't you know, escape into some sort of zen emptiness. No, 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 no. He says, I'm still right here in the flesh. I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, which of course we talked about in another one. That's the circuit of beneficence. Everything in God's universe receives to give. He says, Christ did that for me, and now I want to live for him through the power of him alone. In my own natural, uh, my own abilities, I would fall short of that. But as I crucified with Christ, he now lives in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's go to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. This one's not in your notes, but I threw this one in there just to set up Colossians chapter 1. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. We looked at this passage in a previous session, but uh, I want to make sure that everyone sees it for themselves. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul here is speaking about his job description. And he, reads, uh, and he writes, To me who am the least, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Okay? And if we were to be put on the spot, odds are most of us would say, if asked the question, what was Paul's job description from the Lord? We say, well, he was supposed to be the preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says, yes, this grace was given me that I should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. But then he doesn't end with a period. He ends with a comma. And then in verse 9 adds, and to make all see. What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ? So apparently there's this wisdom of God, there's this mystery, there's this insight, this truth that has been there ever since the foundation of the world, ever since the very beginning. And what is the objective, what's the aim of that mystery, verse 10, to the intent that now... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And notice that here the Lord wants to teach something 
about his plan, his manifold or complex, his deep thinking, his deep plan, his wisdom. He wants to teach it not to the church, but by the church to teach it to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Right? So apparently whatever this is, you know, because God lives in heaven, these heavenly powers live in heaven, couldn't he just turn and explain it to them? But he said, no, 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 no. Saying it isn't going to accomplish what needs to be. You need to see it in the church. Paul says that he not only preaches the Gentiles as searchable riches of Christ, but wants to reveal this mystery, that we're being watched by men and angels. And God wants to use us to teach a lesson to the heavenly beings. And I believe, as we again earlier talked about, that they want, he wants the church to help answer that question of why should any of them be allowed to come up here? Won't they just mess it up for everybody else? They need to see some evidence. God could say, no, 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 just trust me, trust me, trust me. They say, we trust you, but we need to see some evidence. Let's see it in the church. So now we go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll start with verse 24. And you'll see some very similar language to what we just read in Ephesians 3, but Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 24. I now rejoice, again this is still the Apostle Paul, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word. So again, he's talking about his job description for the Lord to preach to the church and, he goes on, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Sounds very much like Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the... See what I'm saying? So we go to verse 27. What is this mystery? What is he trying to reveal? To them... God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is... Christ where? In you, the hope of glory. Friends, if we have any hope of glory, it's found only in Jesus Christ. Biblically equivalent to glory is another term, character, right? If we have any hope of developing a heavenly character, a Christ-like character, of becoming a fit for the society of heavenly beings, it's not going to be through just, well, grin and bear it, really stick it out. It says our only hope is Christ in you, our hope of glory. Thus he can say, the life that I now live is not the same life I was. It's not a modified old life. It's a whole new life, and we have new uh, tenants, if you will. It's under new management. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The first thing that I want you to know from Scripture about victory over sin is not only that it's possible, but it's only possible through the power of Jesus Christ living his life out through you. Okay? Only through that is there any hope. Desire of Ages 3.23. Mrs. White writes, The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. Unless we become vitally connected with God, we can never resist the unhallowed effects of self-love, self-indulgence, 
and temptation to sin. And don't you find it fascinating that temptation to sin is always revolved around self, self-indulgence? We had a whole lesson about that. Sin is a four-letter word, self. And apart from Christ living in us, all we would do is live for us. But if we want to get past that and live for others, which is that circuit of beneficence, that whole theme of heaven, only the king of heaven living in us to develop that within us is our hope at all. We may leave off many bad habits. By the way, just just knocking a few bad habits off, that's not Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? She said, we can do that. For the time, we may part company with Satan. But let me turn and say, if if we part company with Satan without Christ in you, the hope of glory, you know what he's going to say? See you later. Right? And we're going to, no, 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 this is goodbye. And he's like, no, it's not. It's see you later. Take your time. Come on back around. You'll be back. We may leave off bad habits. For the time, we may part company with Satan. But without a vital connection with God, through the surrender of ourselves to him moment by moment, we shall be overcome, not we shall be overcomers, right? The only hope of glory that we have is Christ in you. Are we clear on that point? All right. Now, how do we have Christ in you? I mean, that sounds like a wonderful ideal, but how do you do it? What are some practical things? Well, let's look at Scripture again. Let's go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 6. Scripture says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. So this is the Creator God. The same power that creates light out of darkness can create good out of evil. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where do we find it? In the face of Jesus. So apparently we we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, this character of God. We understand it. We perceive it when we look at Jesus, the face of Jesus. We consider Jesus. We contemplate Christ. We meditate And by the way, biblical meditation and contemplation is not the emptying of the mind, but it's the filling of the mind. Yes? And the question is, what are we going to fill our mind with? By the way, didn't Jesus talk about a parable about this? Right? Well, I'm going to have victory, and I'm going to cast all these things out. And you leave the house nice and tidy and swept clean and vacant. You know what Satan says? All right, I'll see you later. He comes back in, and he brings friends. And it gets worse. Friends, we're not supposed to have a vacant mind. We're supposed to be filled with the mind of Christ. Okay? Again, for it is the God, verse 6, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Go back to chapter 3. Still probably right there on the same page. Just back left a bit. Verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord... When we look at the face of Jesus, right, his glory was veiled to be here. As in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being, what's that word? Transformed. Notice this is process language. Being transformed into what? The same image from glory 
to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So you get the picture. Jesus Christ, His character, His righteousness, His goodness, His person, that who He is, is what we were originally designed to be in the first place, right? By the way, in the very beginning in Genesis, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, which member of the Godhead did the actual executing of the creation of man? It was Jesus Christ, right? And he said, let us make man how? In our image. We were originally designed to be a reflection of the image of God. And the plan of salvation is not just a transaction to get you into heaven, it's a transformation to bring you back into the original image we were supposed to be in the first place. So the same Christ, notice the same God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, referring us back to creation, and the image of God now is the author of our recreation into that image. And he commands us to look unto the light that is Jesus Christ. And by beholding, we become changed. By beholding, we become changed. I'm not preaching instant sanctification, but I am preaching that as we behold Jesus Christ, we become changed. Now, I'm, I, I don't have one with me. I, f- I figured you could just imagine it with me here, but um, you've seen the illustration of you know, trying to balance a broom. If not, you should see it. It's, it's really cool. Okay. Basically, you put a broom with the handle down and the bristle part way up. And everyone can balance a broom on their hand. Everyone can. It's not a problem. You can do it with one finger if you're looking in the right place. Right? If you're focused right down here where the rubber meets the road, you've got seconds and it's over. Right? But if you look up at the ultimate goal, the ultimate objective, You can sit there, walk around the room, talking, and you are solid, sound, secure as long as you're looking up. Friends, that's how it is in the Christian walk. Looking at the face of Jesus, we become changed. There's power in Jesus, and he gives it to us as we continue that connection with him. The other illustration is like Peter walking on the water. Could Peter walk on the water? I love that question. <laughs> He's like, well, it kind of depends. Can Peter in his own power? No. Can Peter through the power of Christ? Absolutely. And as long as he's looking unto Jesus, he's safe and secure from all alarms, right? But then he's like, hey, look at what I'm doing. Right? Very technical theological term. (laughs) And what's his, by the way, once he gets down, what's his only way back up? Look up and cry out, Lord, save me. Aren't you glad, by the way, that the Lord gives us the power and then if we fall, not when we fall, but if we fall, he'll reach down and pick us back up? Hmm. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In fact, that's what we're going to read in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. After Hebrews chapter 11, appropriately enough, that's where 12 would go, but Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter, the hall of faith. And as you go through these, these, these great individuals' lives, you'll see this person by faith did something. By faith did. By faith did. Right? And all of that history is recorded for our benefit. 
as chapter 12 opens up and tells us. Now, therefore, so after that whole de uh, delineation of all these giants of faith who by faith did, by faith did, he see, brings it home in application. He says, now, now, therefore, for you now, we also, notice he's talking about them, and now he's talking about we. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with, what's that word? Endurance. Keep going. Let us run with endurance the race that is set us before us. And how do we run? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have friends in high places when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we look unto him, he gives us strength. Christ's Object Lessons, page 404. Not in our learning. This is difficult for me. I mean, I, I like reading. I like learning. I figure if I know enough, maybe... No, no, no. Not in our learning. Not in our position. Not in our numbers or entrusted talents. Not in the will of man is to be found the secret of success. Okay? You're not going to learn your way out of the sin problem. You're not going to get a position of authority over it. You're not going to outnumber it. You're not going to even, you can't just grit your teeth, even in the will of man. The secret of success is not that. Feeling our inefficiency, we are to do what? Contemplate Christ. Notice, we don't think about that, but we feel our insufficiency. We don't dwell on our insufficiency, but we realize that it's a fact. And instead of getting drawn and just looking at it, we contemplate Christ. And through him, who is the strength of all strength, the thought of all thought, the willing and obedient just might, if they're lucky, gain victory after victory. Is that what it says? No. Looking unto Jesus, there is a guarantee of victory if we keep looking unto Jesus. Right? Now, let's make it even more practical. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Prayer. Let's talk about prayer a little bit. How do we look to Jesus? We're, again, coming in narrower and narrower into that funnel. James chapter 5. And verse 13. Now, often we read these passages, these particular verses in Scripture, when someone is physically ill. Okay? But you'll notice that while physical healing is mentioned here, spiritual healing is a greater focus. James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? What should he do? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. By the way, it's not just for sick and dying people. It's also, hey, if you're happy, sing. It's good. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
Apparently the Lord wants us to pray and through that to give us healing. I believe both physically and spiritually. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 14, it's an interesting opening line there, seeing then. Of course, that means perceptive understanding that he's there, but looking by faith, we see that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hang on to Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. By the way, if you do not have someone who can't, then you do have someone who can. Does that make sense? Okay. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus has been here and been victorious and sits at the right hand of God, he now turns around and offers to extend that same help to us. And he says, all you have to do is come boldly. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to be shy. They're like, oh, I don't want to bother you too much. Come all the time, 24-7. Ring him on the phone. He's going to answer every time. Come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace for time of need. Little booklet, God's Amazing Grace, page 86. True prayer takes hold upon omnipotence and gives us the victory. And notice it's not the act of praying that is the salvific thing. I'm not saying, okay, now mechanically pray five times a day, and that's not what I'm saying. But it's in the looking to Jesus and now talking to Jesus, at that deeper relationship with Jesus. True prayer takes hold of omnipotence and gives us the victory. Upon his knees, the Christian obtains strength to resist temptation. The silent, fervent prayer of the soul will rise like holy incense to the throne of grace and will be as acceptable to God as if offered in the sanctuary. To all who thus seek him, Christ becomes a present help in time of need. They will be strong in the day of trial. To me, that's a very encouraging thought. You call on the name of Jesus just like Peter who went, he will raise you up and give you strength once again. Call on Jesus. And by the way, I, find, I added this one in here because I just think it's fascinating. And if you've never seen it, somebody's got to show it to you. So here you go. Page 279 in the little book, That I Might Know Him. That I May Know Him. It, it, it's interesting to me, she, in, the, in the passage above, she said the silent, fervent prayer. Apparently, we're supposed to talk to God confidentially and privately and just have some communion alone with the Lord. It doesn't say that victory will come to whoever blasts it on Facebook. Can, can we talk like people for a minute? Is that all right? Talk to the Lord. Remember that beautiful passage in, in, in Steps to Christ? Prayer is just like talking to a friend, right? Talk to him. But notice this passage. 
Why would it be at all, you know, well, just, let's just read it and let's think about what it's saying here. When we talk discouragement and gloom, Satan listens with fiendish joy, for it pleases him to know that he has brought us into his bondage. We're always like, oh, I don't know, I can't do it. Take some of that and go to Jesus, right? When we talk discouragement and gloom, Satan listens with fiendish joy, for it pleases him to know that he has brought us into his bondage. Satan cannot read our thoughts. And all the people said, Amen. <laughs> Think about it. He can't read your thoughts. So keep him in there. <laughs> Don't air that stuff out. right? Satan cannot read our thoughts, but he can see our actions, hear our words, and from his long knowledge of the human family, he can shape his temptations to take advantage of our weak points of character. And how often do we let him into the secret of how he may obtain the victory over us? You know, you think of, this reminds you of the story of Samson, right, with the long hair. Like, you know it's the power, but you don't have to tell everybody else that's where the secret power lies, right? Just don't tell him about the hair. And, and you know, read through that story, you're always rooting him for him. Please, just don't talk about the hair. <laughs> don't mention it. Right? I know you've got your issues, but don't take that step. And I'm always just disheartened because, I mean, it's, it's always the same script. He tells her about the hair. Oh, I should have titled the thing, Don't Tell Satan About Your Hair. <laughs> right? right? But think about it. How often do we let him into the secret of how he may obtain the victory over us? We must learn to come to God in any and every emergency. How? As a child would come to its parents as a child would come to his parents. Now, again, please don't take this to an extreme and say you should never talk about any difficulties with your friends, your family. I'm not saying that, of course. But I'm saying there's no need to be overly expressive about your doubts and your concerns. You take those doubts, your concerns, to the raw you and take it directly to the throne of grace. And he will give you strength in time of need. Now, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at another secret of success, a key to victory. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus exemplified this for us beautifully. Alone in the wilderness with his enemy, we read in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is what? Written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if we had the time, we'd go through every word of this. But you see that over and over, repeatedly, when Jesus was assailed by the tempter, his refuge, where did Jesus run? To the pages of Scripture. It is written. There is power. God gave us his word on purpose, okay? It's a shield, it's, it's helpful, it's, it aids the cause. Hebrews chapter 4, going back there, speaking of the power of this word and its role in our lives. Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom he must give account. God can see through even to the very depths, and apparently the Word is powerful to go down to those depths and give us the victory we need. Right? The Word of God is living and active. We should put it to use. It's not a display piece. It's not to go on the, on the shelf. It's not to gather dust. It's to be used and be useful in the Christian life. He gave it to us as a gift. Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul outlines the armor of God, when he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Then he comes back to it. Stand, therefore. Does Paul expect Christians to stand up under Satan's temptations? Absolutely. But only when we put on the whole armor of God. And we don't have, again, time to go through every element of the armor, but sticking to this idea of the Word. Notice this. Verse 14. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, Verse 15, and having shod your feet with preparation of the, uh, the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you were able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? The Word of God. And if you notice through that list, everything else is a defensive weapon, except the sword. Right? Everything else, you just stand, you stand, but if you want to make any kind of inroads, got to take the Word of God, it is written, shh, and slice through whatever He's coming at you with. That's what Jesus Christ did. It is written, time and time again. Psalm 119, verse 11. Hopefully we know this one by heart. If not, you can start your Scripture memorization right here today. Psalm 119 and verse 11. Scripture plainly reads, in our victory need. It says here, Your word have I hidden in my where? Heart. To what extent? That I might not sin against you. Apparently the word of God is specially designed. It fits your hand like a glove. And it's built to be a help in time of need. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Lift him up, page 273. If you notice, we're just doing the same method for each one. Scripture basis and then the laser beam of spirit of prophecy for application. Keep the mind filled with the precious promises found in the Bible. And when Satan comes in like a flood to overwhelm you, meet him with the weapon which the Word of God has provided. It is written. This will break his power and give you the victory. Is that encouraging? Amen. Amen. This day with God, page 322, we can overcome only in the way that Christ overcame, by wholehearted obedience to every commandment of God. You hang on to that word of God and you let that lead the way and you'll slice through the temptations of Satan. That's what it's there for. Signs of the Times, September 30, 1889. We're on the back side now. He, speaking of Christ, used the word of God to thwart the temptations of the evil one. 
This is where our safety lies. We should study the Word of God and be so filled with it that we can meet the enemy of our souls with it is written as did our example. Then we could hope for the grace that God has promised to enable us to be overcomers. Mm. Now, let's go to Philippians chapter 4. We're just moving quickly here because our time just, it just goes. It's crazy. Philippians chapter 4. Come on, Philippians. There it is. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? Content. Kind of goes back to that don't air out the gloom and gloom. Yes, it might be doomy and gloomy, but find contentment. Okay? I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to both abound and to suffer need. And then he ends with this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like it doesn't matter if things are great or things are poor. I have a very consistent outlook on life. I know that Christ is there and so I just keep going. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. An attitude of confidence, not in ourselves, but a consistent, confident attitude in the power of Jesus Christ. Let me read you a couple of fascinating passages about this. In the book Medical Ministry, page, three, uh, page 37, speaking of our Old Testament hero of faith, Joseph. Joseph bore the test of character and adversity, and the gold was undimmed by prosperity. Notice the difference between high and low there, right? He showed the same lofty regard for God's will when he stood next to, the, uh, next to the throne as when in a prisoner's cell. So he was the same Joseph, whether he was by the throne of Pharaoh or in the, uh, the pit, the dungeon, the cell, right? Same Joseph, consistent. Joseph, I love this sentence, Joseph carried his religion where? Everywhere. It wasn't for times and for seasons and for special places or when I put on this tie, I'm going to be this guy. Stop it. Everywhere you go, be the same person, right? Nah, I won't say anything more about that. That's good. Okay. <laughs> Joseph carried his religion everywhere. And this was the secret of his un, uh, unwavering fidelity, a consistent confidence in Jesus Christ, regardless of his circumstance, right? Consistent confidence, regardless of circumstance. Signs of the Times, September 30, 1889. You should be full of hope in the work of the Lord. A discouraged man cannot glorify God. Whatever you do, you should not lose your hope and faith. When you become discouraged, notice again it's when. It's not saying you should never be discouraged. Please don't read into that. But when you do, okay, just like when you are tempted, Okay. When you become discouraged, it is an evidence that you have allowed the enemy to come in between you and your soul and God. It's just an evidence if you stay down there, you let it get in there. Okay. You must lay hold of the hope set before you. Keep looking up, right? And you will come off victorious and be ready to sing the praises 
of God. So some practical things. Prayer, scripture memorization, even the attitude and how we speak. All of these things are aids to help us in our war against the principalities and powers of this dark world. But I want to go to this very last one and spend our time there. As we try to bring this back around to the logical conclusion, we already talked about how the issue in the great controversy was Satan says, I will be lifted up. I will exalt my throne above. I, 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 I will be like the Most High. Where Christ's attitude was to humble himself and humble himself and humble himself. And of course, when Satan wanted to go up and up and up, the scripture says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. But Christ, when he was willing to go down and down and down, says, therefore, he will be exalted. Satan's attitude was one of self-gratification, self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement. Sin was that four-letter word, self. And as we pointed out earlier, the great difference, aside, of course, from the creature-creator divide, which is infinite, okay? Let's be clear on that. Christ is the creator. Lucifer was the creation. But aside from that big gap between them, the main operating principle, the difference between the two, was Christ was selfless and Satan is selfish. Okay? That's the big difference. Mrs. White says all sin is selfishness. It all comes back to that tap root of self, self, self. Well, Christ, of course, lives to give, give. In fact, she boils it down even farther. Christ is all about give, give, and Satan's all about get, get. These are the two operating principles. And sometimes, it, it, one of the best things you can do to get over something in you is to get out outside of yourself and do something for others. Right? To just get off of yourself, get off of the problem, stop focusing on yourself, focusing on yourself. It's like, it's like if you're told, do not think about, and they tell you something. Well, now you can't help but think about it. Right? Try your hardest not to think of a pink elephant. Go. Stop. Stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about the pink elephant with his floppy ears. Look. Stop thinking about it. Right? You're like, please be quiet about it. I'm trying to stop thinking. You, come up. you see, it's a psyche. Just like, oh, how can I stop thinking about me? Stop thinking about it. Just do it. Stop. Think about somebody else. Apparently, selflessness is both the goal and the cure, if that makes sense. Let me show you something here. Okay? Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I believe we see each step of Satan's destruction here outlined in Revelation chapter 12. Beginning with verse 7, of course, we saw the war in heaven, and it goes through verse 9 where he was cast out to the earth. Verse 10 outlines the cross where it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And then we read in verse 11, And they overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Sharing with someone else what Christ has done for you. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the 
word of their testimony and what kind of lives did that result in them? And they did not love their lives to the death. They were willing to lay down their lives for this cause. They had gotten out of self-preservation, self-aggrandizement, self-gratification, and were willing to serve God and to serve others, which of course is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus Christ himself has greater love has no man than this, and he will lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And apparently it's that selfless, giving character that Christ wants to reflect, see reflected in his people. Giving to others. James chapter 4 and verse 17. James chapter 4 and verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is what? Think about that. Sin is not just merely, or let's just say it this way. Righteousness is not fully constitute and merely avoiding doing bad, but it's also the active doing of good. Right? Apparently the Lord wants us to be doers. We see this exemplified. Let's go to Matthew 19. Jesus encountered this in his ministry. Chapter 19, we're going to start with verse 16. A young man came to speak to Jesus. We probably know the encounter well, but let's look at it in the scripture anyway. Matthew 19, starting with verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus says, you should not commit murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and what? What's that next word? Give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Apparently he loved the law of the Lord enough to not do those bad things, but when it came to giving of yourself, sell all that you have and just give. He went away sorrowful. This was not the only kind, the only encounter with this that Jesus experienced. Luke chapter 10. <coughs> by the way, I, please don't interpret that to make saying, by, boy, if you, want to, if you want to be a real Christian, just go sell everything that you have right now. If God hasn't called you that, don't do it. That's presumption, right? <laughs> True? Right? However, if he does call you to that, do it. (laughs) 
really simple rule of thumb. Whatever God asks you to do, just do it. And it might be different what he asks you than you ask someone else. Just whatever the Lord asks you, do it. Very simple. Luke chapter 10, Jesus encounters the same idea, starting with verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? These are very parallel type of things. What can I do to have eternal life? Well, what does the word say? You know, they have this banter back and forth. He said to them, uh, so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, You've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. You know, that should have been the end of the conversation. It's like, you know the answer, now go do it. But he wanting to what? Justify himself, because he knew there was part of that he wasn't doing. Said to Jesus, and who is the Lord my God? Is that the part he had a problem with? No. But who is my what? Neighbor. What about this doing for other stuff? Could you clarify what you mean by that? Then Jesus answered and told a story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay. By the way, of course, this is a parallel to Jesus taking care of us, and someday he's going to return, and whatever we spend for him, he's going to bring his treasure, his reward with him. But he comes to the punchline that the man's question. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. That's what you lack. Are you willing to go and do? Hmm. One more text. Well, there'll be two more texts, but we're coming in for a conclusion here. But James chapter 1. The biblical definition of true religion. Pure, James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Boy, it's good to know what this is. Here we go. To what? Visit orphans? Seriously, the whole punchline of Scripture, the bottom line of religion is go visit orphans? Apparently. I mean, that's not the entirety of it, but that's a big part of it, right? To visit orphans, oh, and widows, in their trouble, and to do what? to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Righteousness is not merely about keeping yourself away from all the bad, but it's actively looking to do good for others. 
This is the completeness of Christian character. As Mrs. White would say, the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within. That your number one priority in your life is no longer your life, but it's the life of others. Because that, my friends, is the circuit of beneficence. That's the undergirding principle that heaven operates with. And if you put some Satan there, oh, that's miserable because he goes against the gears, right? But apparently this life exists to develop within us that character of Christ that receives to give, that receives to give. First, uh, just a couple of passages here. SAA Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 974. What does this have to do with victory over sin? Well, here we go. We become overcomers by helping others to overcome. Isn't that great? You got a difficulty overcoming? Somebody else does. Go buck them up. Go help them. You know? We become overcomers by helping others to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Apparently that's what Revelation 12, 11 means. Get over yourself. Do not love your life to the death, but live and even give and if necessary die for the cause of God and for the love of others that I may know him, 2.24. We are not to look at ourselves. The more we dwell upon our own imperfections, the less strength we shall have to overcome them. Right? The longer and longer you look at it, the bigger and bigger and worse it seems, and you just get more. It's a cycle. We are to render a cheerful service to God. And of course, education, page 265. Those who reject the privilege of fellowship with Christ in service reject the only training that imparts a fitness for participation with him in his glory. Because that's what heaven's going to be all about. That's what I believe he's trying to tell that rich young ruler and those who would question him. Lord, what must I do to be saved? He'd say, well, keep the law. Great. And now give for others. Slow down. Who are these others? And how much do I have to give? And do you think... They reject the training that in this life gives strength and nobility of character. You get strength of character by building others up. Of course, the final illustration. I love this illustration. It's just so simple, so clear, so clean. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 31. Jesus speaking of his own return. And we'll see the distinction between those who overcome and those who don't right here in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are the folks who are not only living to the second coming, but praise the Lord, they're going to live through the second coming. And why is that? Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. <laughs> now I can imagine their confusion. It's like, that was it? <laughs> I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Please pause right here and note, the fire is not for you. It hasn't been prepared for any one of us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Apparently it's our choice whether we join him there or not. And what's the reason they're excluded instead of included? Verse 42. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of these, least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, what I find fascinating about this is I firmly believe that those people who are excluded were fully intending on getting into heaven. And what's fascinating, you notice that the response of both the righteous and the wicked is word for word identical. Lord, when did we see you? Except the implication is in tone, right? The wicked say, Lord, well, when did we see you, right? If we'd have known it was you, sure, we would have done anything because by giving to you, we get something for ourselves, right? It was a transaction, and if we'd have known that was on the line, boy, we'd have done it. We would have been doing community services, prison ministry, salt. <laughs> we'd have been there, friends. Boy, if I knew there was some Jesus I was going to go door to door, I would have gone door to door. But it wasn't you. It was just, you know, those people. It's just people. It wasn't you. Now think about it from the other side. The righteous say, Lord, when did we see you? Sick or in prison or? hungry or third way. We never saw you. We just saw people. And that's what we do when people need help. We never considered it might be you. And he's like, that's my point. You didn't know it was me and you did it anyway. You fit in. You would be happy here. Those other people would not get along at all with the system we've got going on in heaven. It doesn't work with them, right? I love the way it said, the Lord will take everyone to heaven, comma, who would be happy there. The purpose of this life is to figure out if we even want the next life. And to prepare the character that will live there forever, right here and now. It's a powerful thought. Christ's Object Lessons 4.15 as we close. 
those who wait for the bridegroom's coming, of course, that's a reference to the second coming of Jesus, right? Which was just referred to by Jesus himself in Matthew 25. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. Now, does that mean that they're standing on the eastern horizon and they're seeing the cloud about the size of a man's hand and saying, Look, there he is, way over there. Is that what this is talking about? Or are they saying, Behold the character of your God here. Let me show you what heaven is like before it gets here. Behold your God, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Not just a proclamation, but a revelation. They need to see it. The children of God are to manifest his glory. And what does glory refer to? Character. Where are they to reveal this? In their own life and character, they are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. Friends, I believe that Jesus not only wants us to be overcomers, he's given us every tool, every resource, and if we look unto Jesus, we can overcome. But overcoming, watch this now, just for the sake of getting in, I'm going to chip away at everything, so I'm going to, no, 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 no. You overcome so you can help others and to develop within you the character of Christ that lives to give so that we can go from this world to the next world seamlessly. Has it made sense? Praise the Lord. Is there encouragement that Christ is powerful? Yes. Friends, I hope hope it's made sense. I hope that it hasn't been a burden. I hope that there's liberty in the law of Christ and he wants you to be just like him and to repopulate heaven and that once and for all, when sin is done, it'll be done for good. And let it start here with us today. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we thank you for creating us at all. Didn't have to do it, but you did. And Lord, you certainly didn't have to send your only son to give us the opportunity, the hope of salvation. But you did, and Lord, we're yours doubly. We're eternally grateful. But Lord, help us to not limit what you want to offer us and view salvation as a transaction we can have. But, Lord, help us to see the entire character transformation you want us to grow throughout the rest of our lives into. And even beyond your second coming, Lord, help us to always, throughout eternity, grow more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, let that start today. For we place our faith in the author and the finisher of this work, Jesus Christ the righteous. In his name we pray. Amen. Blessings, everyone. Have a happy Sabbath. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.